welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is Dale Cox, author of multiple books on the history of Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, and events spanning 150 or 200 years. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and then launch into what you're doing with the history of Alabama. Sure. I grew up in the Wiregrass area and have always had a love for the history of the southeast, particularly the old deep south country of Alabama, Georgia, and kind of the panhandle of Florida. Over the years you know, of pursuing studies, I studied anthropology and then history. And for the last 10 years, I've really dedicated myself to trying to transcribe as many documents as possible from the Creek War and the First Seminole War era, really from about 1811 through 1821. And then also to begin to convert some of that into volumes of history that, you know, will will be accessible to people for a long time to come, I hope. Now, you're the author of multiple books. How Mm -hmm. many and what do they cover? I'm the author of 18 and co-authored another one. They cover a wide variety of topics, really, ranging from the Claude Neal lynching in the 1930s would be the most recent time period, all the way back into, you know, Spanish colonial times. The largest number of them are about the uh, Seminole and Creek Wars. Now, Seminole and Creek Wars are important at this particular time, January of 2018. Mm-hmm. But that's important because you have recently been working in the bicentennial of the Seminole War. Is that correct? That's correct. The first Seminole War, as it's generally known by European historians, took place in 1817 through 1818. The Seminole people themselves in Native American cultures tend to view the Seminole War as one continuous war that lasted from 1817 to 1858, whereas most historians break it into three different wars, the first, second, and the third Seminole War. And how does that impact Alabama history? The Creek Wars are one thing. Most historians think about the Seminole Wars as having to do with Florida and potentially Mm -hmm. Georgia. Bring Mm -hmm. us up to date on this. Well, the earliest part of the Seminole Wars, the first Seminole War in particular, was really a continuation of the Creek War of 1813-1814. Historically, when we're writing, we like to kind of put an exclamation point on the Creek War, you know, with the Treaty of Fort Jackson. But in reality, the Treaty of Fort Jackson was, with one possible exception, only signed by chiefs and leaders who had been allied with the United States during the Creek War. The principal Red Stick leaders, with the exception of William Weatherford, all went into Florida. And they continued the war. And so they continued to fight on through the War of 1812, through the so-called Negro Fort episode or the Fort at Prospect Bluff on the Apalachicola River, and on into the First Seminole War in 1817. You have the very same chiefs that Jackson and Floyd and the others were fighting in Alabama involved in this First Seminole War. You have Peter McQueen. You have the prophet Josiah Francis. You have Atasimiko. You have William McIntosh. 
Uh, you have Andrew Jackson, John Coffey. You have people like that who are associated with this outbreak that took place primarily in North Florida, Southwest Georgia, but also in South Alabama. There was fighting that took place in the state of Alabama during the first Seminole War, both between U.S. troops and Creeks or Muscogee, and between Alabama militia, or at, at that time, Mississippi territorial militia, and the Creeks. This was really a continuation of that Creek War, and it signaled the start of the Seminole Wars then, that would then continue on through 1858. I've always understood that the Treaty of Fort Jackson opened an area from the Florida line to South Barber County for overland travel of migrants from Georgia. But it sounds like this was still dangerous territory. Did the Seminole War have any effect on passage through southwest Georgia and southeast Alabama? Yeah, it absolutely did. Uh, there was a great deal of volatility in the South Alabama area, really from the Chattahoochee River over, you know, to north of Mobile. There were attacks around Historic Blakely, Alabama. There were attacks in the, the Conecuh River area of Alabama. There were attacks along the Chattahoochee River around Fort Gaines, Georgia, and the, the settlement of Franklin, which was across the river from Fort Gaines. There were multiple attacks in that area. When we say Seminole War, people often think of the Seminole tribe of Florida or the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma as we know it today. But that political entity had not really come into its own yet. At this time, you still had many different groups that were assimilating together to become the Seminole Nation. You had the Red Stick Creeks. You had some of the lower creeks fighting against the United States in this war. You had the Miccosukee. You had some Seminoles, but you also still had a few Choctaw who were over in this area fighting. You had Uchi. You had Black Seminole or Maroons. You had all of these different groups, and they didn't distinguish wars the way that the United States did, and they definitely didn't agree with the terms of the Treaty of Fort Jackson. And in fact, the Treaty of Fort Jackson is what actually led to the outbreak of this Seminole conflict. And how so did it lead to the outbreak of the Seminole conflict? In southwest Georgia, in what is now Decatur County near Bainbridge, there was a village called Fowltown. The head chief of Fowltown was an individual named Nia Imathla, or Nia Mathla, as he's commonly known today. He was living in lands that had been ceded to the United States by the Treaty of Fort Jackson. So the United States told him, you're going to have to move that your own treaty lands that, that have been you know, turned over to us. And he said, point blank, I didn't sign the Treaty of Fort Jackson. I didn't have anything to do with that. I wasn't there. This land is mine, and, and I'm directed by the powers above to defend it and shall do so. The Secretary of War of the United States sent an authorization down to the U.S. Army to remove him in fact, the authorization was to take him as a hostage along with his principal warriors and his subchiefs until his people all agreed to move. And that led to the outbreak of this war. It continued on, according to the Seminoles, for another 40 years. Combat phase continued for another 41 years. The Seminole people and the Miccosukee people did not actually reestablish relations with the United States government until the 1960s. It's kind of like the situation that, you know, the world sees in North and South Korea right now. There's no fighting going on, but we're still at odds. And that was the way they viewed their relationship with the United States. 
that until they reestablished and accepted federal recognition in the 1960s, they considered themselves still at a state of kind of Cold War with the United States. But they hadn't signed a peace treaty, just like North and South Korea have not signed a peace treaty. And so there still existed a state of truce. Exactly. Exactly. And it was never even really a truce. The fighting just stopped. The 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 combat continued until 1858 and 1861 of course you know the civil war began the united states uh, had other issues you know on its mind by that point so the remnants of the seminole and miccosukee people were just kind of left alone down in the swamps in south florida in a state of you know it was peaceful but no one was messing with them if someone had gone down and messed with them we would have had conflict again even though there were very few of them left by that point So until they established political relations with the United States again in the 1960s, we had, I guess, a Cold War continuing in the Deep South. Let me ask a specifically Florida historical question. There was pressure in the 1920s to sell and buy lots of land. Was there pressure on the Seminoles at that point by people who were buying land that may or may not have actually been part of the land that they were defending? Well, yeah, you did have that going on in the in the 1820s. You had that, and, and really all the way up until their national limits or their territorial limits were established, you know, with the creation of the reservations or the reserves in South Florida. It was a very convoluted time, and a lot of it had to do with cultural misunderstandings. The United States acquired Florida in 1821 from Spain. The view of Spain had been that they only really owned Florida up to the high tide marks in the rivers, uh, unless they had a, a signed treaty stating otherwise. So when Spain transferred Florida to the United States, most of Florida was owned by Native Americans in the views of Spain. The United States' view was that they had purchased Florida. Suddenly, you have people who, for centuries, had their own lands in Florida, not necessarily the Seminoles, who were you know, an offshoot of the Creeks, but the previous groups before them had always had their own territorial integrity under Spain's government. But then the United States came along and suddenly said, we own it all. That began pressure that continued all the way on up through the 20th century. Now, Dale, in addition to publishing books, you also have a TV channel and a website that people might be interested in. Tell us about those. The website is exploresouthernhistory.com. It's a chance for me just to kind of write about off-the-beaten-path places all over the southeast. You know, there are hundreds of pages about Alabama on there, hundreds of pages about Georgia and about Florida, but really about every southern state on there. I began that about 10 years ago just as a way to keep people up with my travels because I was roaming around and people were always curious where I was going and it grew into a site you know, where I was doing historical writings on it. The TV channel we started a year and a half ago is called Two Egg TV, T-W-O-E-G-G, as in the town of Two Egg in Florida where I grew up. We needed a unique name for the channel we were creating and so I said, well, we're in Two Egg, let's call it Two Egg TV. It's a heritage travel channel that focuses on Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. And we roam all through, you know, all three states. In fact, we'll be doing more shooting over in the Mobile area later this week. And as you watch the channel, you see from Mobile to North Alabama to North Georgia to the Everglades of Florida on there. 
it's a chance for us to both show people really unique heritage locations and destinations that might be of interest to them, but also we produce long-form nonprofit documentaries because I won't mention names, but there are other channels that feature history that don't necessarily have that much history on them anymore. And so our goal is to take people places they might not normally see or might not know, you know, those places are even still there and that they can be visited, but also to produce documentaries. Our new one is about Fort Mims, and it's a 30-minute documentary that really looks closely at the Fort Mims story and how it relates into not just Alabama history, but the history of the Southeast. And we've been working on it for two years. We do a lot of both, and we'll continue to do a lot of both. And so that's uh, twoegg.tv, and uh, that's the website. People right. can go there and... You can see it on twoegg.tv. We also have a YouTube channel where you can watch the individual stories there. And if you have a Roku device or stick or a Roku smart TV, you can just add Two Egg TV to your channel offerings and watch it live. That's truly fascinating. What, what have I missed? What would you like to talk about? Well, I think going back to the first Seminole War, one thing that people don't often realize is the role that the Red Sticks played in this war. The primary fighting force in that war was Prophet Josiah Francis and the Red Sticks who had fought the Creek War in Alabama. Those same warriors were the primary fighting force involved in the first Seminole War. It shows that sometimes it's easy to kind of write them off after the Creek War, but they were still very determined and through at least 1818. And another interesting facet about it is that McQueen's nephew, who was a young child when they fled into Florida at the end of the Creek War, later became Osceola, who was, of course, one of the leading figures in the, in the later Second Seminole War. We don't realize the impact that these uh, individuals from Alabama had over the coming history of the uh, southeastern United States all the way up to today, even though they lost the Creek War. Well, Dale, thank you very much. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Join us again sometime. Anytime. Anytime. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.